Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. My friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, joins me to contextualize the episode and offer some professional insight about the topic being discussed, which is mental health awareness. The featured guest for this episode is Anthony Barbosa, who's the founder and director of the Summer Jam Classic in Worcester, Mass. He joins me to share his journey with mental health awareness and therapy. Thanks for listening. everybody. I am honored right now to be with a celebrity, one of Worcester's finest. He is on a meteoric rise right now, let me tell y'all. He went from ashy to classy. (laughs) Actually, I don't think he's ever been ashy. My man is just running things in Worcester right now. I'm so proud of him. He used to play for me. And some of you might recognize his voice from episode 17, Poverty and Me. Uh, I'm here with Anthony Barbosa. How you doing, bro? What's going on, man? I'm good, man. I'm good, man. It's, it's funny you said that, Ashley, prior, because all my friends used to come over to my house and be like, you got a lotion? I'd be like, never used it in my life. <laughs> <laughs> really? You've never used lotion? I've never, ever used lotion in my life. How never, does that man. play with the honeys, man? Uh, <laughs> like, are your hands rough? I just never ever like needed lotion for anything, literally anything. Like, like I just never needed it. It's funny, all, all my boys, of course, like like growing up in Worcester, everybody be like, yo, and you got some lotion. I'd be like, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah, I can't remember ever not having lotion. It's essential. <laughs> my cocoa butter is always in hand. I got lotion in my car, lotion in my office, lotion everywhere. I got hand sanitizer though. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, this day and age need that. You got right, masks right. too? Yeah, I got masks for sure. I got everything. Okay. You're here today. Um, last time we talked about socioeconomic status or uh, your money situation growing up. And we got into a lot of different things too. We talked about how you grew up thinking about race and ethnicity. Uh, we also talked a little bit about the topic that we're going to cover today, which is uh, mental health, specifically anxiety. But before I get into the questions, I'm going to ask you the question that precedes all the others in all of my conversations, and that's how do you identify? I identify as a Puerto Rican man. Is that it? Yeah. Any other identities? Yeah, I'm a girl dad. I'm a girl dad. I'm a girl dad. Okay, so girl dad, Puerto Rican Rican, man. Okay. And not superstar. You're not like, because right now you are, you got a key to the city in Worcester, man. I got two, but it's all right. Do they open anything? You know what? I'm kind of sick of them. I I got two of them right now, and they haven't opened anything yet. So, so okay, yeah, it's so corny. Like they give you a key yeah. to the city that don't open anything. Yeah, it's funny. Someone actually posted the other day 
and was like, hey, man, they, they got to stop giving out keys to the city. I just <laughs> thought it was kind of funny. Because I, I, I think the same thing is kind of funny. I got but not, I mean, everybody don't get a key to the city. Uh, you give keys to important people, people doing big things. And uh, you organized uh, Summer League in Worcester, um, the Worcester Summer Classic. What, yeah, what's the, the name Worcester, of it? Yeah, the, the Worcester Summer Jam Classic. I'm going, I'm going on year six. This is 6-1. All right. And I know that that is no small feat. It takes a lot of work to pull that off. And it's probably stressful. And the gist of what we're talking about today is the matter of stress. And before I even ask you about your journey with understanding your own mental health, how are you doing managing all of this work around Summer Jam? Yeah, um, honestly, it's funny. I had this conversation with my mom today. When I'm busy, my anxiety and my mental health is, is actually at its best. Um, it's when I have a lot of downtime, a lot of time to think, a lot of time to overthink is when I really get overwhelmed. When I'm busy, like this time of year with Summer Jam, and I mean, it's 7 a.m. to 10 o'clock nights from the phone to text and the meeting. I think when I keep my mind busy and I keep it sane, that's actually the best time of, the best time of year for me. And, you know, I think it's the best for, for my mental health when I'm just busy, busy, when I don't really, I would say, like, think back on, like, the negatives in my life or, like, the tough trauma or, like, the things I don't want to think about. So like this time of year when I'm doing summer jam and I'm staying busy with these meetings and talking to people 24 seven, it, it really keeps me sane. It's kind of like, it's kind of therapeutic, you know, you know, like, I, like doing summer gym classic, there's been times where like, I wanted to quit, you know, my first couple of years, you know, going negative, you know, not making a dollar, like $40 to my name. My first year I did it and I'm negative $300. I'm like, dang, I don't have enough money to cover the event. And yeah. it, it was stressful. But then I started doing it and realizing, like, wow, during April to August is, like, when I'm, my anxiety is, is, is at its lowest. So I think it's, like, therapeutic in a way to stay, to stay busy. When did you come to understand that it's therapeutic for you to be busy? Um, so it's actually two phases. So my, my anxiety really, really got bad um, my sophomore year in college, which is when you was coaching me. Um, that's I'm sorry, I did that to you. I'm, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, actually, like, well, like, like that's the weird part. I thought basketball was like, like my way out. You know, I thought that's why I played basketball. But I think, I think when I got to, um, like, like the best of me being a basketball player, that that going into that sophomore year, I started getting really stressed out, thinking about college or like, I guess I got in my head about like, I'm I'm doing really good at basketball. You know, I'm starting to get used to the school thing, which you know, as a student. I wasn't really good when I entered Quinsig. And then yeah. after my first year, I, I learned how to become a student mm -hmm. and I want to be the best student. I want to be the best basketball player. And I was the, the only player left in my circle of friends that were playing basketball. So I think the stress of all that just really got to me because I'm not saying I was going to the NBA, but I really thought I had a, I had a future in basketball that, that summer. Yeah. And that's when, you know, panic attacks started happening left and right. I would work out and feel like I'm having a heart attack or, after I'm done playing basketball for four hours a day, I'm lightheaded. And I, like, I think I visited the hospital about 25 times in a five month span. You know, I thought I had heart disease. I thought I had cancer. I thought I had tumors. I thought I had ALS. Like I was, I literally was in and out of the hospital. I think I played, I think I played only the preseason with you. I think one practice before regular season, the ambulance came on my, if you recall, the, the, um, the ambulance came at practice one day. I just, my heart felt like it was falling out of my chest. Uh, I got cleared. Um, we had a scrimmage versus Clark. 
and I just was running up the court and I just, my legs gave out on me. Yeah. I remember that very clearly. Yeah. So, I mean, from, from August, to, I would say about December, I was hospitalized. Oh, I think over 20 times to be exact. Um, had machines at home. Um, and they just couldn't find not one thing wrong with me medically. And it was getting frustrated. And they never proposed that up front that it might be anxiety related. So the funny thing talking about mental health is I think in 2011, I don't think mental health was where it is today. I don't think mental health was as big. Cause I don't even remember having anxiety conversations ever. Really? And, yeah. I, I don't think so. I didn't get diagnosed with severe anxiety until 2016. Did you have bad health insurance? I mean, anxiety is nothing new, man. Like, yeah, you know, people have been struggling with anxiety for a minute. I, yeah, I mean, I had ma- I had mass health and like I never got they never said PTSD. They never said trauma. And because I think a lot of the issue was when I was put in these hospitals, I was able to control my mind. I felt like and go back to normal, I guess you would say, you know, because I felt safe. I felt I felt comfortable. I, I, they kept telling me I'm okay. So in my mind, I kept telling myself I'm okay. So I never had episodes in the hospital. So maybe that's why. Yeah. So in a conversation like this, sure, I'm asking you pointed questions about your mental health, but are there other instances in your life where you offer that without somebody asking it? No, because honestly, when I, when I brought mental health, it was always a joke to my friends. Like they're like, oh, that's made up. Like you can't have mental health. Like that's just a made up thing that they do to get insurance money. Or it was always a joke. And Well, poor and, mental health. Like we all have mental health, but right, like, right, it's right. whether or not it's in and like, good condition and, or bad. Yeah, right. And, and like even my family got tired of hearing it. They're like, dude, you keep going to the ER, you keep in the hospital, nothing's wrong with you. Like just go in your room. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Because like, cause like I said, like it would come and go because- from 2000, when I, when I went and moved on to MCLA, them four years was like paradise for me. I had no anxiety, no nothing. I think I was away from home and I was busy all the time, you know, like at Quinsig, there was a lot of like quiet time for me, you know, home. I didn't work. Was it a, like school? Was it really that crazy? At MCLA, I lived there. So from the time I get up at 5 a.m. for practice, to I go to bed at 11 midnight. I'm doing something 24 seven. So I think my anxiety is really tough when I'm not doing anything and, and I have a lot of time to overthink. So you played division three athletics at Mass College of Liberal Arts in North Adams. And I know that there are services offered to student athletes when they're in college. I'm wondering if there were ever any workshops that got into mental health, self-care, anything that forced you to think about yourself and how you were feeling. No, um, like I said, like even then, like now I see self-care. Um, I'm actually a board member at um, MCLA right now. And everything is self-care, like mental health, anxiety, mm. all these disorders. But when I was there, it was, you know, you just, you just got to get up and go. Like, ain't no one going to feel bad for you. Ain't nobody going to care. Like, there's no, there's no check-ins like there is now. Like, even as board members now, we get, hey, how you doing? Check-ins and stuff like that. Like, it's a lot, a lot of focus on mental health. I really feel like that hasn't been a thing for like the like the last three years, I would say I've really started seeing a lot of mental health things. All of this hit you in 2011. Do you have any memory of having an episode prior to 2011? Like when you were growing up in our conversation, episode 17, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, um, there's a lot of stress in your life. Your uh, father was locked up. Mom was locked up for a period of time. The money situation wasn't right. Do you remember any time in your childhood where you felt 
anxiety where you felt how you ended up feeling in 2011? So when my mom and dad went away for a little bit and a short term, and then my mom ended up coming back um, and my dad, then they split. Um, so I started doing things early. Um, I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was smoking black and miles. I was drinking 40s. Like from, from, from 13 to 16, I would say, until I, I really started going back to school. That three years span, I was really kind of always, I wouldn't say high, but kind of, you know, always had something in my system, you know? From uh, so I would smoke Newport, I would smoke Black and Miles, or you know I would drink, you know the, the cheapest liquor I could get. So I kind of was like numb them them years to really mm. feel it. So you were but self medicating. I was self medicating a lot, yeah. but then when I really like shifted to basketball, I would say my junior year, summer, going to my senior year, I remember I'm playing summer league at Crompton Park, and same kind of thing that happened at Quinn Sig with when when um you was coaching me, um my heart was just pounding and. It, w- it wouldn't stop pounding that whole night. And my dad actually took me to the ER. And, you know, the same thing. They're like, they did e- all these tests and like, you're fine. But that was the first time I felt that the symptoms of anxiety, like the physical symptoms, you know? Yeah. I'm just sitting in my room and my heart's just pounding, skipping beats. Like literally, I feel like my heart's coming out of my chest. And that was the first time I went to the hospital at 17. Um yeah, I was 17 at that time um, for like the physical symptoms that ended up leading to my anxiety diagnosis. And were you going to physicals every year growing up? Like, yeah, every year. Okay. Yeah. Every year, yeah. Growing up, do you have any recollection of people talking about going to therapy or um, how they were managing their stress in a healthy manner? No, um, like, I mean, I, I, I grew up. I grew up in a household and, you know, family Like we just all, it was a lot of self-medication, you know, from cigarettes to liquor to marijuana. So that, that talk never happened. My mom was my biggest supporter with that though. She'd be like, Hey, it runs in your family. Um, my Nana has a lot of mental illnesses. Um, she, um, she has PTSD diagnosed and, uh, I forgot one of them, um, schizophrenia, you know what I'm saying? Schizophrenia. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. She has that. Um, so she has a lot of mental health. So my mom kind of had a little bit of background on mental health from that. And she said it runs in her family. So she was the only one that really believed me and supported me. You know, there, there, there was days she's like, all right, we're not going to the ER again, though. She was like, come on, like, you're fine. They tell you you're fine. No ER. But she was always my backbone, my, my backbone through my anxiety journey. She's always supported me. But yeah, my, my friends would be like, it's mental health. Oh, you're, you're just faking oh, you're fine, like, you know, you're hungover or do this or do that. Yeah, and that's a function of people not knowing any better. Yeah. Uh, and the way we're socialized as boys and men, you know, you're not supposed to express um, feelings of pain or sadness. You just got to power through all of it. And I have a little story to share here real quick about mental health and understanding stress. So I remember being in high school, and I talk about this often. And I heard a lot of my classmates uh, during my senior year talking about feeling stress around the college application process. And I remember asking somebody, what stress? I don't know what stress is. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know what stress is? I'm like, everybody around me is talking about feeling stressed, and I don't know what that means. And then thinking back, I don't remember instances where my parents were talking about their feelings and how they were managing bad feelings or or sadness. 
I don't have any recollection of my brother, my older brother doing that. Nobody around me was talking about stress, feeling down, having to talk to somebody. And so here I was as a 17-year-old in high school wondering, what is the stress thing? Can you relate to that story? Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's a, it's a sign of weakness. Um, I've literally seen my dad cry and like get, and my dad's a tough dude, get like riled up. I'm like, what's wrong? You just be like, just shrug, like not talk, like there's nothing, like nothing. I could count on, I could count on one hand, a number of times I saw an adult male relative cry in my presence. And right, and that took, and I was 26 when I seen my dad cry. Wow. Yeah, and I think, and but I, I think that's a reflection of society today. I think we're learning how to be more open, because back in the day, you know, especially growing up, like stress was a sign of weakness. You know, anxiety was a sign of weakness. Like, if you can't control your mind, if you can't control your surroundings, then you're weak. So, I, like, like nobody wanted to be weak. You know. Are you comfortable crying? Yeah, I am actually now. Actually. Crying is actually. You would my, cry around your boys. Yeah, I've I, I've actually done it in the last six years. How many times would you say you've cried around people? Twice. In six years. I like my boys twice. My mom, I would say a couple times. Okay, and did you cry around them after you won a championship? Was no. it something like was it sadness? Yeah, I, I just released my like how I felt, my emotions. Got you. Yeah. When I cried at my father's funeral 20 years ago, I thought my knees were going to give out. It felt so weird to cry, and it felt weird because I hadn't cried in so long. I look at my wife, who sheds a tear, like who's boo-hooing when we're watching movies and stuff, and I'm like, I wish it was that easy for me to cry. Yeah, I cried during movies, too. Yeah? What's the latest movie that made you cry? Oh, um, oh. Kevin Hart movie got me really good about when he um when his wife dies giving labor. Yeah. Um on Netflix, the Kevin Hart movie on Netflix when huh. he's a single dad. Um, but thing with me, when I cry, it's like you said, like you said, you remember I said you like your knees got like weak? Yeah. Like when I cry, I feel like just things got lifted from my shoulder. I, I think it's it's my it's my best coping mechanism. My like my like most healthiest because um I would say my senior year at um MCLA when like when you know, you know, like the first three years of college, life is good. Like, you yeah. know, like it's like party, school, sports, and there's nothing else. Then your senior year hits and you're like, all right, I got one more year of freedom and I got I got to figure life out, right? Like real world, I got to do something with this degree. And when my senior year hit, my anxiety switch came on. Like I went three years in paradise, man. When I tell you like no anxiety, like not not one time, I can't remember, like no, like no tingling in my hands, my face, no heart palpations, no nothing. Well, you weren't in the environment that you grew up in that caused you a lot of stress. You exactly. it, you were removed from it. And so you um, were diagnosed with anxiety. When did you give in and go to therapy? Was that an easy thing for you to do? No, um, I said no about two years into my diagnosis with chronic anxiety. Um, I said meds, no way. I, I won't take medication. Um, I would self-medicate, you know, alcohol was a big thing for me, but then two years in, man, I, I, I couldn't handle it no more. Like when I mean, I felt like I was going to die. Like I felt like I was going to die every day, like driving or talk, like I would be in a room and everything's just spinning. Like I'm just yeah. dizzy. Like, I'm like, yeah, I definitely have a brain tumor. <laughs> like, yeah. like then tests come back. No, dude, you got you, nothing wrong with you. So, um, there was like, just see a therapist. 
and I ended up seeing um, a therapist in 2018. Yeah. Um, and she really, she changed my life in a sense of like, just someone to talk to without judging me, you know, like it wasn't even emotional. Cause like, you know, when I would talk to my mom as like, she was my therapist, it would be too emotional, you know, yeah. too comfortable. Like it's just tears and sadness and not really getting, I'm not getting a point across. I'm just, letting all out to her and just that conversation that sympathy conversation with a therapist is just like you're talking to like yourself kind of in a mirror you know it's mm-hmm. just a mirror of you and they're just they're just asking you questions and they're just supporting you they're not digging too deep they're not asking you personal personal questions they're not judging you they're just reflecting with you it's kind of like i said like therapy to me is just a reflection of myself with someone that's like a robot like you're not that person's not there and for how long were you seeing this therapist I saw her until COVID hit. Yeah, so about three years almost. Then and COVID how hit. often were you going a couple of times a week? Um, it's twice, it was twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday, from 7 to 8.30. And COVID uh, cut all that? Yeah, well, it, a mix of COVID. And I actually had my daughter March 7th of 2020, which literally four days after that was the shutdown of COVID. So we're walking yeah. out the hospital and they're like, shut down, pandemic starting. And we're like, what the hell is going on? Um, Would you say that your therapist gave you any tools to manage your anxiety? Yeah, no, she, like she gave me a routine. She made my life more structured. Um, cause I told her I would freestyle everything from summer jam to American pyramids to coaching to life to relationships. Everything was just a freestyle to me, like no structure, no routine. She kind of just she taught me how to slow down, you know, like slow down, schedule 7 a.m. breakfast, schedule 930 meeting. Um, not just wake up and look at your phone and do random things, like just schedule your life, um, build a routine. Um, she also made me more loving. I would say like, like text people, you love them, text them. How are you? Like I was kind of. Hold on, hold pause. You never text me that you love me. I, but I actually do text you more than you. No, you, you, you never said you, you love me. Say it. That would mean something to me. I, say I, it, I Anthony. <laughs> I love you, Hallie. <laughs> No, but I, I love you too, Anthony. But Continue. yeah, but um, I think, you know, I think, oh, like giving flowers, like I give a lot of flowers. Like, well, you know, we've had that conversation, like, of, like my mentors and just like just me not being so because sometimes I get I get resentful, like Hallie didn't do enough for me. Lynch didn't do enough for me. My mom didn't do enough for me. My sister didn't do enough for me. I get resentful for no reason. Then I, I she taught she taught me how to take a step back. And learn to appreciate the little things, you know, like Hallie's not going to buy me a house. Like there's, he's, there's no need for you to buy me a house. There's no need for my mom to hold my hand no more at, at 30 years old. There's, you know, it's just things like that, that I learned from her that I appreciate. And by the way, you keep calling me Hadley. It's Stena. Stena. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so used to saying Coach Had. Sorry. People keep messing up on the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Just, yeah. Yeah. So are you thinking about seeing the therapist again? Are you done with it? No, um, I, I'm going to revisit in the fall. Unfortunately, when I was going to start back up, she um, moved to Colorado. Um, and she opened up her own therapeutic something in Colorado. They, they really didn't give me details. And you were cool with talking to a woman? Why not a man? So at, at the point of therapy, I just really, really didn't want to do it so i was there was like what, what do you want boy girls i don't care like like you know like i didn't want to even entertain that conversation i was just like, i don't care i'll just do it to do it so you guys stop bothering me and and it was a female and it worked out well for you i'm happy yeah, to hear that yeah it worked out great for me yeah wrapping up here 
what would you offer as advice to young people regarding managing their mental health? What And also, what would you say to coaches and adults about how they could help young people understand their needs from a mental health standpoint? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my best advice is just express yourself. Don't be resentful. You know, I think just expressing your emotions and, and how you feel about things is important. You know, seek help when you need it. Also to coaches, you know, just you, you got you got to remember that, like, these people have emotions, too. They have feelings, too. They have their own life outside of any sport you coach, any program that you mentor or teach. You know, just I, I think if you if you treat everyone as their own individual, I think, you know, you just see a lot of success and, and you can help them through their tough times or any changes in their life. All right, so you got to know my homie Anthony Barbosa a little bit. Bosa, Mr. Popular in Worcester, the superstar. What were your takeaways from that conversation? Oh, gosh, so many. One, I I so appreciated the way he explained therapy. And, you know, what did he say? It was really a conversation with himself in front of a mirror, right? Mm, It was a reflection of himself. And I tell you, I say that to my clients that therapy really is a way to all my, my job as a therapist is to reflect back to you what I'm hearing from you. It's, it's a safe space, it's a non judgmental space. And these are all the things that Anthony shared, and it really helped him. So I'm just so glad that um, he was able to have that personal experience. And I count on people like him now yeah. to spread the word that therapy is not scary, therapy can be helpful, and therapy isn't. You know, what people might imagine, Dr. Phil is laying on the couch, like it's nothing like that. So I, I hope as he continues with this journey that he helps to make more referrals, if you will. Yeah, I hope so, too. And he was really happy to have the conversation and um, eventually put it out there because he really wants other young men in Worcester in particular, um, young men of color, to be a little bit more informed about their mental health and when to recognize things are wrong and that it's okay to, to talk about those things. Um, I'm so proud of him for his willingness to have the conversation and be vulnerable. Something that came across to me in the conversation, it wasn't new per se, but so, it's something that um, I've thought about over the years that he brought back up, which was the way that people self-medicate. I think about basically the plumes of weed smoke that I walked through in the inner city. And it's not to say that because somebody smokes a joint that they struggle with a particular issue. But I know that when you smoke a lot um, and you smoke in order to deal with situations, you're probably dealing with some uh, mental health issue that you're either aware of or not. And he didn't necessarily talk about smoking weed, but he smoked cigarettes for a time. Um, As a youth, he drank. He was self-medicating. Can I... Can Go I ahead, jump in. Just, um, I want to clarify, I think the term mental health is often misused. Yeah, yeah. We all have mental health, yeah. just like we have physical health, we have um, intellectual health, we have financial health, we have mental health, we all have it. And so sometimes people, I think, use mental health to mean a mental health disorder, yeah. and they're, they're not one of the same. Yeah. I yeah. think about mental health like a continuum, we all have it. It gets to one side of the continuum when it starts to impact your functioning. 
when the way your fe- your feelings or your behaviors are now getting in the way of you doing what you need to do to function. Now we're talking more about the side of the spectrum where it's more of like a diagnosable, diagnosable mental health concern. Sure, yeah. Right? For Anthony, he talked a lot about anxiety and stress. Well, guess what? We all have anxiety and stress. When does it get diagnosed is when it starts to be problematic for someone's functioning. So he was having panic attacks. He wasn't able to, you know, get to places or do things. He was having these episodes. It was impeding on his functioning. That's when you and you can go and get support. My hope as a therapist is to teach people that you don't have to wait until there's a problem to get support. It, again, it's on a continuum. So how do we at the very at very early on learn to manage our emotions, including anxiety and stress, and regulate it and cope with it so that it doesn't get so bad it impedes our functioning? Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I'm thinking about recognition of poor mental health. After my eight-year-old was born, I was leaving uh, a class I was taking at the time. I was in grad school at UMass Lowell. And while I was in class, I just felt uneasy and unsettled, and I didn't really understand how I was feeling. It just was a new feeling. And then I got in my car and drove home. It was going to be a 40-minute drive home. And while I was driving and I was also talking on the phone with my mom, I suddenly felt like I couldn't breathe. And I'm like, hey, mom, I got to go. I can't really breathe. And she's like, what are you talking about? And it's the worst thing to say to my mom. Um, especially on the phone because yeah. she, um, she's like, what's, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you if I could get off the phone because I need to manage this. I can't really breathe. Yeah. I wasn't hyperventilating per se. Okay. And so after she finally let me off the phone, it felt as though the seat in my car was giving away. Like the middle of the seat, it felt like I was falling into the driver's seat. I'm like, yo, this is weird. So I had to pull over. I called the ambulance. And when they put me in the back of the ambulance, I really started to have the breathing issues. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, is this how this is going to end? And that was my introduction to anxiety disorder, I guess. Mm. Um, I haven't had an episode like that since. That was like eight years ago. But up until then, one, I hadn't experienced it, never heard anybody talk about it. So I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was having a heart attack. And so Anthony's story really resonated with me. Yeah, you must have been so scared. I was terrified. It was my, my fear was making my condition worse. I think exactly what you're saying. And I'm sorry that you had that experience and that prior to that experience, you didn't have people talk to you about what anxiety can look like and how it can show up. And so that when it did show up, it wouldn't be so scary. Like had you had some information. Yeah. And so that's where I'm leading with a question. I'm wondering about how we can better inform young people and people in general um, to be aware of um, warning signs, aware of the symptoms of anxiety disorder or depression, bipolar, all these different conditions that signify poor mental health. So if you were to implement some sort of initiative to provide education, how would that look? You have to start young. You have to start at a very early age when children are learning about different things in, in the world. And when they're starting to have feelings, now kids have big feelings, right? And once they have words, it's important to start to label those feelings and talk to the, the kids about what, what was that? That was 
scary. That was unexpected. That was, you know, you start to help them use language and language can be limiting. I understand, but you got to help the, the kids frame their internal experience. Emotion is physiological. Yep. Right. And so to start talking to them and naming it and help them understand that emotions are part of our body. It's a way that our body gives us information. It is now our job to figure out what is it trying to tell us? Two-part question. Yeah. Do you do that with your children currently? Do you name their feelings for them and talk to? Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that first? And then I'm going to ask you the follow-up question. I'll give you an example. So my son is six. And he is somebody who has a temperament that's more slow to warm up. Yeah. So he kind of enters into a situation. He needs to assess a little bit, a little bit more. Lanes hangs back a little more until he gets comfortable. And then they can't shut him up. Like then he takes off running. Right. And what I've noticed is that because he's anytime he's in a new situation, he's afraid. It's a, something unknown, something new. So we just get into the habit of me asking and my husband does the same. Like, what are you afraid of? What's making you nervous? What's making you uncomfortable? What's mm. what's going on? And then he'll ask some questions and I'll say, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? What do you imagine could be like the worst case possible, right? And then he'll tell us and then we'll say, okay, well, if that did happen, this is what we might do. Or if that happened, this is what you could do. And so what you're trying to teach him is that you just got to listen to that emotion and then we can do something about it. You can ask for help. You can ask mom for help or dad for help or some other trusted adult for help, or you yourself can figure it out. Does that make sense? He's going to grow up and be soft. And this boy who's <laughs> all aware of his feelings and talking about being sad and stuff. I mean, don't you want him to like grow up to be tough? And you could tell I'm, I'm not serious with this question here. <laughs> But so this goes into the second part of my question, right? So there are people who adhere to that, like, boy, has to be tough. You know, just shake him and tell him to move on and, and just ignore how he's feeling um, in order to manage. And so, you know, for some of those people, they grew up in cultures or situations where they never talked about how they were feeling and it wasn't okay to express themselves so how do you get to the parents who don't even know to have that conversation with their kid? I think you got to redefine what tough means. What does tough mean? Tough means you suck it up and you never show anything. And then what, you know, to me, tough is, I'll use my own child as an example. Tough is getting out of your own way and go show people what you got. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't get in your head about it. You, this is a new situation. You're getting a little nervous. Now you're stuck. And now all these people aren't going to get to know all that you can be tough to me yeah. is work it out, <laughs> work it out in your head, assess the situation, figure out how to problem solve and go. Cause I know he's slow to warm up. And once he gets out of his own way, you can't stop the dude. Right. To me, that's tough. I just wish there was a manual out there that people could pick up somewhere. Honestly. I mean, I've had to, you know, parenting I've learned, um, a lot through trial and error. There are things that I picked up from my own parents. Um, but when I go to uh, physicals with um, my my children, um, I always feel like I, I see opportunities in that moment for the physician to be talking about, well, how do you talk about emotions and feelings and giving me something to think about and perhaps giving me a pamphlet 
Um, and I know even then for some families, if they got the pamphlet and they got the little bit of coaching from the physician or somebody else in their community, whether it's through a church, uh, particularly in our communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, they'd say, oh, they're just trying to Americanize me, right? Yeah. Even in the Taiwanese culture, we that that's the narrative that you hear. You know, that's the that's the American thing. That's the white white thing. Um, but I think again, how do you define these things? I would say that psychotherapy is a very much of a Western medicine, if you will. Okay, but my people go to healers. We go to the temple. And we talk to the priest. We talk to the monks. Is that not therapeutic? Mm. It is, if you ask me. Right. So we grew up more used to, more accustomed to that. My family, we go to healers. Like when I go back to Taiwan, I go back to California, I go to temples. Like we do the whole, you know, chant. We did all the, that's what we're accustomed to. That seems more culturally relevant, culturally acceptable. And I would tell you some of those healing that happens, it's amazing. Right. Sitting down in somebody's pretty little office with two therapeutic chairs. Like that's a Western approach right? Different roads all lead to Rome. I don't know. <laughs> like maybe people just get at it in different ways, but it's all, none of it's wrong. That's all folks. Special thanks to Dr. Shahizel for offering her take on the topic and Anthony for being vulnerable enough to have this conversation with me. For more information about anxiety and other mental health disorders, please visit adaa.org. Again, that's adaa.org. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity in me.